Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of New Books in Sociology, part of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Richard Osijo, Associate Professor of Sociology at the City University of New York. And I'm being joined today by Yasmin Besson-Casino. She's a professor of sociology at Montclair State University, and she's going to talk to us about her recent book, The Cost of Being a Girl, Working Teens and the Origins of the Gender Wage Gap. Yasmin, thanks so much for joining me on the show. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, I want you to just start by just telling us a little bit about you, about your your background. Oh, sure. Um, my name is Yasin Besen-Casino. I'm a professor of sociology at Montclair State. Uh, I've been a sociology major for years, and, and currently I'm the book review editor of uh, Gender and Society. All right, cool. So, so your book really deals with issues related to gender inequality, which are very popular topics right now, especially with the the Me Too movement and with uh, celebrities who are uh, speaking out about uh, gender inequality issues. And one of the major topics that we hear is the the wage gap. Uh, But usually when we hear about unequal pay between men and women, the focus is on adults in their peak earning years, as you mentioned. But what about youth, you're asking? What about people's first jobs? How do they shape the workers they will become. And we, we think of first jobs as being formative and character building, right? But they're not only that. So tell us how you decided to start this project and to tackle this really timely issue uh, from this very unique angle. Well, sure. I've, I've always been interested in uh, gender and especially the pay gap, even before the, you know, pay me too movement. But when we talk about the pay gap, like you said, we always talk about either, you know, women have babies, women leave the labor force, and there are two schools of thought. You know, the first one, uh, the human capital approach always looks at individual differences between men and women, you know, uh, differences in education. Men used to have more education, and that's not true anymore. Or even when women have more education, they just study the wrong things or they're just individual differences, especially differences in skills, differences in um, uh, job experience, especially because of uh, workforce interruptions when women take off you know, time to have a child or about child care or parental care, and that's the human capital approach. The second approach says, no, 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 it's not about individual differences. It's about the jobs that men and women work in. When something becomes a woman's job, it just pays less. Men and women just work in different jobs. And as I was thinking about these theories, I was at a coffee shop, and where I usually am, and one of the things I noticed was I was teenage workers. And for most of us, the work experience starts very early. We work as teenagers. A lot of us work as tweens. But that was something research never looked at. We assume that the pay gap starts when we're uh, in our maybe peak career years, like in our 30s. But I thought, what happens? So many teenagers work. Can we look at gender differences then? And that's how the book started. Yeah, and it really builds very nicely from 
your some of your previous work, especially your uh, the book that you wrote right before this one. Can you tell us a little bit about that book and how it informed this one? Oh, absolutely. My previous book was a consuming work. It was all about teenage workers or some, sometimes even earlier. And I was looking at how so many teenagers worked, and I was looking at a very specific group of teenage workers, the more affluent ones, the suburban ones, the more affluent ones. And I noticed that unlike other industrialized countries, our labor force, teen labor forces, dominated my more affluent teenagers. That's counterintuitive to me, right? My image of a, you know, a child laborer or, or a teenage worker was, but maybe like it was more inspired by like Dickens novels or, you know, unventilated sweatshops. But in the U.S. it was nothing like that. And in fact, it was a big form of inequality that the ones who needed the jobs were unable to get them or it took them longer to get jobs. So I, I normally ask authors about the methods that they used uh, at the end because uh, I just like, you know, hearing the, the, the story of, of how they were able to do it just last and their reflections on it. But I, I think it would be best to, to hear a little bit about how you uh, chose to, to study this topic. It's some really interesting mixed method approach that you, uh, that you use. Can you tell us a bit about it? started in the coffee shop. Like I said, it started with very in-depth interviews at my ethnography at a coffee shop with uh, lots of teenage workers. But of course, as with many ethnographies, you get the question, is it generalizable? Does this apply to everyone? I decided to take it a step further, and I did surveys with a lot of teenagers. But for this book uh, especially, um, I wanted to focus on both the freelance laborers and also uh, employee-type jobs. So I use a mixed methods approach. There's a wonderful data set, um, National Longitudinal Study of Youth, and I um, made use of that. It tracks down teenagers from, it starts from um, when they were like 12, 13, and it tracks down the same teenagers so you can see like their career trajectories and what happens to them, their values. So it's a wonderful uh, longitudinal data set. So I did quantitative analysis uh, using that. I also interviewed a lot of babysitters because uh, in terms of uh, a gendered uh, freelance job, of course, you have to talk to babysitters. I also found that uh, male babysitters were very popular. I didn't talk to a lot of them, but uh, at least a handful of them, I really wanted to get a sense of what it was like to be a male babysitter. And I didn't know that they were, um, they were desired. They were sought after and they got paid a lot more. Then, of course, I talked to a lot of uh, young women who work in retail and service sector jobs. And at the very end, uh, it's not something I normally do, but I decided to do an experiment because I really wanted to see the employer side of it, especially the uh, parent side of it, the employers of uh, babysitters. Because most of the time when you talk to employers, do you pay you know, boys and girls differently? So if you hire babysitters, do you, hire, do you pay boys and girls differently? And they say, no, of course not. So I wanted to design an experiment where I randomly give them vignettes of a babysitter, Molly or Jake, and they get um, either a male or a, baby, uh, or a female babysitter. And of course, another experimental condition is they can get a babysitter who really has a connection to their kids versus a babysitter who's not really connected to their kid, someone who's very professional but not really attached. And I wanted to see... Well, everything is going well. Either case, you're happy with the babysitter. Would you give them a raise? And what I found interesting was despite what the parents say, male babysitters were a lot more likely to get a raise. And even when, you know, girls ask for money, they, they're more likely to be declined. 
so yeah, those were my methods in a nutshell. Yeah, yeah, really interesting, especially the the longitudinal aspect and the and the experiment. Thanks for for laying that out. Now it's overall, you know, you just take a step back. It's really amazing that for all the talk about the gender wage gap, that we don't know much about where it comes from. We don't know the where, and we don't really know the when. So, what from your research did you find? Uh, explains where the first gender wage gap really emerges? Well, based on the longitudinal um, study of youth, um, when teenagers are 12 or 13, controlling for all the background factors, you see that boys and girls are paid the same. But once they get to be 14 and 15, we see the emergence of the first wage gap, which just widens with age. And I especially wanted to look at this group because it was like a natural laboratory for me. It was like a social laboratory. You can control for a lot of these common sense explanations of the wage gap. You know, if you're looking at boys and girls that age, they don't have kids. They haven't left the job force yet. There's no, there's no housework. And even at that same level, they're at the same level of education, same level of skills, and yet 14- and 15-year-old girls are paid less. And that I found really surprising, that we can control for all these common sense explanations before, you know, choices kick in. Right. And then you go through those uh, possible reasons for this this early emergence, specifically the uh, choices like like occupational segregation, such as they just do different types of jobs, and this idea of work values or the the idea that boys and girls somehow have different motivations for working, uh, different sets of values. So, so what did you find from exploring these different reasons? Well, first of all, in terms of values, boys and girls did not have any value differences. They were equally likely to value, you know, jobs. And they were more interested in meeting new friends. They saw work as a, a, a having social benefits. So they were more focused on that. They were interested in branding. They wanted to work for cooler jobs, especially uh, jobs where they could consume the brand. So, but in terms of gender, I didn't see any um, gender, gendered value differences. But one of the reasons was girls tended to work in uh, freelance jobs like babysitting. And once like jobs became available, boys were more likely to move into um, non-freelance jobs like more service sector jobs and retail jobs. But that was only a partial answer. Even within uh, freelance jobs, girls were paid less. And even within like uh, retail and service jobs. Right. And then so to reveal these missing explanations, you then focus on girls who work in these two sectors. So the freelance job of babysitting and then the more service sector jobs. And for babysitting in chapter two, uh, you really start with a, a really illustrative story about a young woman named Katie. Uh, Katie's 21. She's in college and she's been babysitting for the same family since high school. Um but what was once a rather flexible job, as she describes it, taking care of just a baby, uh, becomes a very taxing one, taking care of two school-aged children, which means driving them around to different activities, to helping them with their homework and uh, doing other time-consuming things. Uh, but while the the work, uh, the terms and the conditions of the work change over the years, her pay uh, barely does. Um, and when she's tried to leave, they say that they need her, which I thought was really interesting. And this is a real fascinating point for uh, for seeing how the mechanisms for inequality really emerge. So then tell us in this chapter how you describe how they got these jobs, um, how they're kept in them, and then how do they describe the conditions that they face? Well, most of them got these jobs through in, informal networks. You know, we always 
talk about the strengths of weak ties. And, and, and there is actually strength in weak ties and finding jobs, but the same weak ties that help us, you know, find these jobs also make it hard for us to ask for money. And that's very interesting about these cases where a lot of them said, oh, I'm working. Actually, there was one case where she said, I'm working for my godmother's daughter, like kid, and no, I can't ask for money. So that's not a direct, you know, it's not a very close person. But even though it's not a very close person, these informal links make it more challenging for us to um, ask for money. And a lot of these girls started out as, oh, I'm helping someone, I'm doing something good, and, and something that was good for them or that worked for them as a high school-like student, because of these ties, it made it like difficult for them to leave these jobs. And there were so many of them who wanted to, you know, work in more formal sector jobs or they wanted to go into, you know, um, doing more job-related things or career-related things, but they were kept in these jobs a lot longer than they wanted to because... They had these links, and that was one of the problems with the babysitting jobs. Well, the second problem was the um, job description. So when we're talking about the pay gap, it's very hard to control for the same type of job. So even if something on appearance sounds like, oh, it's babysitting, how women experienced it and how men experienced it, that was vastly different. For a lot of girls, well, I actually gave them a survey of what their job entailed. So in a regular shift, what are you supposed to do? Almost all the girls had to do light cleaning or a little bit of cooking, and they had to run errands. And in terms of, like, babysitting, a lot of them had to do, oh, I'm going to help with homework now, and we're going to do this playtime. Whereas with boys, they just had to do babysitting, and that's all they had to do. No light cleaning, no running errands, no, like, you know, picking up dry cleaning, no such thing. Babysitting was babysitting for them, mostly play-oriented or sports-oriented, and then that was it. So that was a there was a marked difference based on gender. Yeah, and then there's this other interesting finding of the issue of care versus money. So if you care, you'd do it for free, right? So they need to show Absolutely. that money is not important to them. Um, <laughs> and that was the same problem with the experiment. You know, a lot of the parents thought when a girl, especially a girl babysitter who is very attached to your child, when they ask for money the evaluations go down. Now, most of these girls, after asking for more money, asking for a raise, they're considered to be manipulative or they're not nice anymore because they ask for money. And asking for money is directly in opposition to care. Right. And then there aren't that many boys who you studied, but the ones who you were able to, to find and to analyze, you know, really calls to mind the just men in general who work in women's jobs and the different treatment that they receive. So you, you described that really well. Oh, very few. Thank you so much. But there are very few and tracking them down was um, very hard because there were only, um, I only managed to interview three of them, but I, I at least I, I got to do a very in-depth, uh, uh, in-depth interview with the three of them. But what was really interesting is, even though there were three of them, and they're not, and you know, female babysitters are abundant and they're everywhere, but the male babysitters tended to know how much jobs paid for, and they knew other ba male babysitters and how much they charged. So their networks were very useful in terms of providing that um, information on money or, or, or work-related stuff. Yeah, now the other sector you look at are uh, jobs in retail and service. Now, how are they a little different, or, or are they at all? How do they get these jobs, and what are the, the different conditions that they face? Well, in service sector and, you know, retail jobs, they used to be 
easy to get, you know, through a pulse test if you have a pulse job, but that's not the case anymore. You know, as you know, a lot of uh, service and retail jobs have a lot of aesthetic labor requirements. You have to look like the brand, sound like the brand, and that has been a central component in hiring for a lot of teenagers. And when you write about, you know, like teenagers, in most popular media, you hear, oh, young people have an advantage. People, you know, want young people to be sort of the face of the brand, and they're slant to it. A lot of the girls, they had more aesthetic labor requirements. Even though boys had it too, boys had it one time, especially when they were doing the job interview, girls had to sustain it. And that was one of the uh, major differences. Yeah, and a real interesting finding you have is that the girls you studied won't report uh, clear cases of sexual harassment incidents because they have come to consider this as not their real job. So it's something that they shouldn't really invest their, 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 their selves into, right? Their time into, even though that they're, they're being repeatedly and consistently uh, harassed. Absolutely. That I found very interesting. And I wasn't expecting to find a component of uh, sexual harassment because that wasn't the focus of my study. But I heard this story from a lot of um, older workers that if they were students and this was not their career job, a lot of them said, oh, there's harassment, but I'm not going to report it. It's not my real job. And a lot of the problems with the workplace go underreported because a lot of these part-time workers, student workers, feel it's not their real job. But, I mean, it is a real job. It's a job. It's a part of our uh, workforce, and we have a structural problem with it. Right. Yeah, it's, it's just interesting to me, yeah, that they're able to, you know, keep that distance or they're, they're made to think that there is a distance and yeah, very, very interesting. But what, what would you say the, the implications then of this in terms of how workers uh, think about themselves? Like we said earlier, you know, we tend to just to dismiss these, uh, first jobs, these, uh, first retail jobs as just short term part-time things that you do when you're young. Uh, but like babysitting, they're, they're often women's first work experience, and it's where they learn these, these unequal gender practices and perhaps even come to normalize them. And they really have the potential to shape how they think of themselves as workers and their future work behaviors. So, you know, what, what are some of the implications of this? Oh, I think the implications are really important because it has some uh, long-term consequences. And when we think about jobs, you know, like your early jobs, they build character, you know, you learn about the workforce, you learn like time management, but you learn a little bit more than that. You learn about inequality and harassment, and, and that's what we're teaching our children. And what really breaks your heart talking to these women is a lot of them knew about these positive messages, and a lot of them got very encouraging positive messages at home or at school, and they simply didn't believe them because at firsthand they experienced the problems of the workforce. And most of the time, you know, with the pay gap, with negotiations, you know, I spent the good half of like the last decade going to a negotiation like workshops, and that was supposed to be something to help women. But maybe unintendedly by doing that, we shifted the blame of this structural social problem to the victims of inequality themselves, the young, young women. And we thought, oh, if only you negotiate, you'll be fine. We'll solve this problem. And they notice that I do negotiate, but I'm not getting the money. And I've, after that, my evaluations go down. We need to shift the blame away from the victims of the uh, harassment or victims of inequality and kind of treat it as a structural problem of the workforce. Yeah, and to further that a little bit, it would be 
I think it would be it would be admirable, obviously, uh, if the book just looked at gender. But a really great aspect of the book, I think, is your intersectional analysis, which comes in chapter four, uh, in which you look at the intersection of gender with social class and race. And these were thoughts that were popping up in my mind um, as I was reading it. Now, what can you? What are some of the additional obstacles that young women? Um, and or uh, young women of color and or young women from working class backgrounds face? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, this, was, this was an intersectional story throughout, and this wasn't, when we talk about the wage gap, most of the time it's reported as get down by race, especially among uh, teenage workers. Race was a major factor in, in this analysis, and it was a significant factor. And women of color, young women of color, had a wider wage gap. And especially ones from uh, lower SES backgrounds, had trouble finding jobs. Most of them were told, you don't have the right look. And if they cannot afford the clothes or the brands, they were told, oh, you don't know enough about the brands. And some of them talked about, um, especially coming from uh, predominantly African-American neighborhoods, that some places, some malls didn't hire from those neighborhoods. You know, I had like uh, participants, who gave the address of their grandmothers, for example, or their school address, just so that they don't face that address discrimination. But there were also some emotions that were not allowed to express, that they were not allowed to express for women of color. Uh, I have the story of Kiara, for example, where she works at a sporting goods store, and when she is upset at customers, she's not allowed to be angry, She's not allowed to be upset, whereas her, you know, white counterparts don't have that. And she has a difficult, she has difficulty with emotional labor, right? When she shows, like when she's happy or when she's nice, customers are still not happy. They're suspicious and they think her emotions are not real. She's faking it. So those are some of the racial and SES-based differences. Yeah, that's, that's really fascinating. Very great finding. Um, now, we know a lot about in the literature, the short term and the uh, the more, I guess, indirect uh, effects of working as a teen, uh, or the more immediate effects, I guess, such as you know, to grades in school if you're in high school or even in college, or perhaps to uh, your behavior. Uh, but what would be some of the the long term effects of these uh, unequal conditions on uh, women in the workforce as they start to enter into uh, more of a career path, their 20s, 30s, and, and 40s, and so on? Well, one of the interesting uh, long-term effects was women who have worked as teenagers tended to make less when they were, and it was approximately $2,000 a year in terms of their future uh, future annual incomes. And most of them worked in sectors that had nothing to do with their you know teenage jobs. But it had long-term effects. So when we talk about, oh, work benefits you, it doesn't, you know, working as a teenager benefits boys in the long run, but it doesn't benefit girls. And the second thing was they also learn gender, right? As they're learning how, you know, the world of work works, they're also learning that it's gendered. And one of the things they learn is negotiations don't work as effectively. They're less likely to negotiate. And they also are discouraged. You know, they're at the beginning of their careers, but they're discouraged already going in because they know some of the issues of gender that they're going to face. And one of the interesting parts of uh, working, especially in sectors, uh, in the service sector, if they work in apparel industry, they tended to have lower self-esteem, and they used to describe themselves as being overweight when they were not, and they tended to have long-term body issues if they had worked as teenagers um, in the apparel industry. 
those were some of the uh, long-term long-term effects. Yeah, really interesting. I, I kept thinking of, um, you know, I keep thinking of like the more celebrated cases, such as I don't remember the details on this, but when the actors uh, Michelle Williams and Mark Wahlberg both had to return to the set to to do some extra scenes for a film that got released to that she received very little pay for it while he negotiated and got you know six figures or something like that um and it became a big sensation but it always makes you wonder you know how many of these cases go out are out there that you know nobody hears about because obviously they're not from celebrities or actors or anything like that but it's certainly you can see the seeds for it being sown um at these earlier ages in these uh first jobs Oh, I'm sure there are millions of cases, and we don't hear about it, and and we definitely have, you know, millions of uh, babysitters. <laughs> and, and in a way, it's harder for freelance jobs because we just don't talk about money, and especially for freelance jobs, it's hard to find out how much you know jobs pay for. And we have these very um, little differences in how we treat you know men and women in negotiations or in job interviews. When I was talking to um, uh, male and female babysitters, most of them, I asked them to describe sort of in detail what their uh, interview process was like. And they were told, this is the going rate, this is how much you're getting. Whereas the boys were asked, how much do you expect to make? So the parents who were negotiating with them were more open to negotiations. So even these little differences add up to a lot. And most of the boys were told, oh, here are the extras, you know, we can provide. We can pay for your gas money or we can pay for your travel, whereas the girls weren't, the parents who were negotiating with the girls weren't that upfront. So instead of providing these workshops for the individual women, I think we should provide these workshops for the people who are doing hiring so that they know what their biases are. Okay, so put your policy hat on. Um, it's not enough that you've identified the problem. Now help us to solve it. So what can we do uh, now, now that we know what we know, what, what can be done to help to alleviate some of these um, issues for teen workers? Well, I think we can start with... Uh um, the HR, and we can start with training people who do hiring. And I think there were marked differences in how men and women are treated in an uh, interview situation. And I think they yeah, they have to check their own biases. They have to be aware of how they treat men and women differently so that in an interview situation, they should be able to offer men and women the same text and the same interview, you know, not asking one of them how much they expect to make and not like telling the other, this is how much we pay, because that's the big difference. And I think it makes sense to have like clear lists of, you know, what the job description is, because based on, you know, emotion work, job descriptions of, you know, boys and girls are very different. Girls are expected to do more. They are expected to care more. And even if it's the same paying job, if you're not the same task, it defeats the whole point. Even when they were paid the same, girls just did more stuff. They were still cooking, they were cleaning, but they were getting paid the same amount. So I think jobs need to be very clear about the job description. We can have a culture of talking about money. You know, we raise our children not to talk about money. It's rude not, you know, talk about, talk about money, but Structurally, it's uh, a lot of places don't have salary information. I mean, there are some websites like Glassdoor that provide that, but that's based on self-reports. So if we make salaries public, we can solve some of this problem. Well, it's not going to be easy, obviously, but it is great. I think that these conversations are being had, and I hope that your book goes a long way to uh, help to shine some of the attention on some of these you know, earlier examples of where 
this wage gap really uh, originates for for many people. So we have taken up a lot of your time already, Yasmin. So I like to conclude by asking you what you are uh, looking at now. What is the next uh, project going to be? Oh, the next project is, I think, is going to be a um, book project. I am collaborating with um, Professor Dan Casino, who happens to be my husband also. Uh, we're looking at uh, couples and how couples, especially men who lost their jobs in the uh, recent recession and how men who lost their positions as uh, breadwinners, how do they negotiate masculinity and what happens to their social views, what happens to their political views, and how do they see the world and how do they divide housework. So that's the next book project. Great. We'll have you on with your husband when uh, that book comes out. So thank you so much oh, for <laughs> cool. Thanks so much <laughs> thank for joining so much. me. All right. Take care. Thank you for having me. Thank you.